Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders and builders in DeFi and crypto. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and today we have with us Max Fage with Barnbridge. Max, uh, thanks for being here with us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And then I pr- pronounce your last name right, Fage. Um, it, it's Figa, but no one gets it right, so we're all good. <laughs> Figa, yeah. Okay, well, I know now, so I'm going to get it right. <laughs> um, so, Max, what's your background, and how did you get into DeFi and crypto? Sure. Uh, so my background initially was in international affairs and technology policy out in D.C., what ended up happening was I was working at a think tank during the kind of 2017 crypto bubble, and they gave the intern the uh, blockchain research report duties, essentially. So I wound up being a 2017 top buyer, and that uh, wound up, you know, going like it did. But I tried my best to be a kind of like nights and weekends uh, research analyst uh, for most of the bear market, just learning where I could. And about a year and a half ago, or well, no, yeah, shoot, it's even been longer, two, almost two years ago now, um, I had the chance to join an advisory firm that was primarily working with Web3 Foundation and ARK Invest. And then so I got to kind of go a bit more full-time into crypto doing that. Um, and I spent most of 2020 doing that, um, but really had been kind of following DeFi almost since... Uh, since the since the term was coined and knew it was kind of something I wanted to get involved in kind of at, at the builder level. So when I joined the Barnbridge Discord about a year ago now, I knew it was something I was really interested in kind of building out and I had the opportunity to join them this past March. So I've been with Barnbridge Core for the past uh, seven months now and that brings us brings us here. Well, congratulations. Uh, yeah, I was also a buyer of the 2017 top and yeah, fun times, you know, you learn a lot, though, through those those bull markets and those those major drops like we had back. Was it like in April this year? I think there's a lot of learning that goes into there for newbies and uh, seasoned vets, I think. Um, but what what is your role at Barnbridge today? How or how has that evolved over time? And what does that entail now? So I spend most of my time working kind of on product design and product feedback, as well as just making sure there's a clear liaison between the community and the core team when it comes to that type of feedback or just more general kind of like DAO governance uh, type items. So it's, it's been a real interesting kind of role relative to what I was doing uh, prior to crypto, just because... DeFi is such a you know hyper integrated space, right? So it's been really cool getting to, you know, on behalf of Barnbridge, meet so many teams across the space, be constantly iterating because you know there's a new product almost every week <laughs> uh, in DeFi. I mean, DeFi 2.0 for everyone that's on Twitter, right? So it's it's just been a, a really a, a joy, kind of navigating all of that over the past seven months and figuring out you know how, how can Barnbridge really be something that everyone in DeFi can use one way or another, right? Right, absolutely. And are you full-time crypto right now? I am. I, I made that jump uh, in March. Um, so working for a DAO, getting paid by a DAO, it's, uh, <laughs> this, this has definitely been, uh, been interesting, to say the least. 
Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And we've seen a lot of people do that a lot more recently, uh, just with, you know, DAOs spinning up. Did, did you have any reservations about making that jump to getting paid 100% in crypto? And how are you getting paid at Barnbridge? Is that, are you getting paid in the, the native asset, the barn token, or I guess the bond token, or are you getting paid in USDC? So I get paid in USDC, and I would say that the process has been relatively seamless up front, right? Like, as long as you have an exchange account that's linked with a bank account, um, you're able to interact with the non-crypto world with maybe a day's worth of friction uh, in between getting paid. Obviously, there are um, there's a bit more of a, a kind of like admin burden on you, right? Um, just in terms of taking care of what would have been the payroll tax, um, what would have been benefits, right? I think these are all kind of underdeveloped by a long shot <laughs> uh, in, in the style kind of first model. Um, I do, I think there are projects working on kind of like collectivized benefits and in health insurance uh, for kind of DAO workers uh, that, I, that I've seen. I, I would say the, the current state of DAO tooling is still very kind of premature, right? And from from a perspective of you know me being like just a, a young guy who <laughs> is, isn't necessarily um, doing really a 401k, right? I've been a kind of a crypto guy ever since I got into the workforce, right? So this is natural for me, but I definitely think there are uh, kind of like tooling and, um, you know, I would say on the benefits front especially, or just kind of like the, the more admin payroll type items that still need a lot of kind of development out in the DAO space to make it feasible for more than just, you know, 20 somethings with uh, risk appetite to, to make that jump, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely going to be one of the next major unlocks is DAO tooling and maybe like kind of a DAO HR management type vehicle, which I mean, it's it's very difficult, but you, you see some DAOs out there working on it right now, which is uh, interesting and hopeful for uh, people like you. I'm not full-time crypto, but I do get a, a nice little portion from the NX co-op for my contributions there. So it would be nice to have a little help managing uh, this, but it, we'll move on to Barnbridge now. So can you describe for us uh, and the audience just what exactly is Barnbridge and what does it do? Sure. Um, so Barnbridge can be thought of as a suite of risk management protocols. So that means is, you know, when you're interacting with DeFi apps on a day-to-day basis, um, you're always accounting for different types of risk. You know, obviously the most clear as day one is asset price volatility, but then you also have things like interest rate fluctuations that at scale, you know, especially if you're a bigger player, um, differences in interest rates, uh, whether you're borrowing or, or lending out, can make quite the difference to your bottom line. And so to date, we've uh, published Smart Alpha and Smart Yield. Uh, Smart Alpha is focused on that price risk management, while Smart Yield is focused on that interest rate fluctuation risk. And so the way we think about this is over time, Barnbridge can build the primitives that allow people to hedge or or lever their exposure to these risk profiles and kind of calibrate their portfolio in a way they might not have been able to uh, without Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So let's let's get into those two products that Barnbridge offers: the Smart Yield, and then the Smart Alpha. I guess these are bonds, Smart Yield bonds, Smart Alpha bonds. 
what are some of the differences between the two and why would someone choose one over the other? And I guess, just how do they work also in general? Sure. So Smart Yield was our first product and that launched uh, back in March. And essentially the way you can think of it is that for any given uh, interest rate market that is supported. So for example, this might be compound USDC market. That's like a market right? that, that we integrate with. Using Smart Yield, you're able to deposit either into a junior side or a senior side. And the idea there is that we're actually able to offer the senior side a fixed return in exchange for, you know, potentially giving up upside should they be fixing in a return that is lower than the prevailing market rate at any given point in time for their deposit. And the way this is all done is simply that you have people that have deposited on the junior side, you have people that have deposited on the senior side, all of the yield earned by those aggregate deposits go to the junior side. And so you, you have leverage there, essentially, right? And on the flip side, what the seniors receive is essentially a, a premium uh, from the juniors, meaning that if you've deposited into the junior side of Smart Yield, you owe the senior side some amount of money. But what you're actually doing with that is getting access to any yield generated by the senior deposits. So what ends up happening is if you have senior deposits that outweigh junior deposits, uh, the junior side is, is levered uh, relative to the underlying yield of that integrated market. So it's kind of almost like a seesaw or tug of war type concept, right? Where as one side fills up and surpasses the other, now the kind of deal to enter the other side gets more lucrative. And over time, it, it should be a step function, you know, of, of kind of like people just coming in at, at greater and greater size. Because our senior side and that system is represented by NFTs, it, does, it has proven to be a bit of a liquidity issue. You know, it's cool to lock in X percent on stable coins, but you can't go use it for leverage or you can't really sell it easily when you want to. That's just not appealing even to uh, sophisticated crypto institutional investors. Um, so I'm actually... Uh, kind of helping lead a, a spin-out project we're calling Fiat DAO that's looking to address this issue, uh, specifically on the senior side of Smart Yield. Uh, but, but that's kind of um, a, t a tangential topic. But just just pointing out, you know, we've, we've recognized that it hasn't found product market fit to date, but we think the underlying mechanism is, is relatively solid, right? It's more so kind of these secondary elements that need to be addressed on, on that front. So that's one thing. <laughs> And then on the other side, we have Smart Alpha, which I, I wouldn't quite classify as being a bond-based system. Smart Alpha is more akin to a, a prediction market, actually. And so Smart Alpha is another system where we're just doing something very simple, but it has kind of emergent properties for, for, for its users. And so the, the way to think about Smart Alpha is that we essentially create single deposit pools. Um, so... As of today, and probably an hour or so, you'll be able to deposit DPI, uh, for instance. And when you deposit, you choose to either be on a senior side or junior side. The system runs on week-long epochs. Uh, right now, they're, they start Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern. And so over the next few days, you'd have the ability to deposit DPI, choose your side, and the epoch locks the system Monday morning. Um, so whoever is deposited, you know, on one side or the other 
is now locked in for the following week. And what ends up happening is that if price goes up for DPI over that week, seniors give assets to juniors. And if price goes down over the course of the week, juniors give assets to seniors. That's all that happens. Uh, not, nothing crazy with derivatives contracts or anything like that. Uh, it really just says redistribution between the two sides. Well, what's interesting about this is that it actually unlocks pretty clever user experiences. So on the senior side, if you get more of the asset as the asset price drops, what we're able to do is actually preserve the dollar value of your position while you're getting yield in the underlying asset, right? So ETH price drops 10%, okay, you've if the thresholds line up, you just got 10% more ETH to compensate you for that in the course of one week, right? It's pretty significant. And then on the flip side, if you're a junior, um, you essentially have a levered position because not only does price go up uh, if you're on the right side of a given epoch, but you've also gotten more of the underlying asset. So it could be the case that ETH goes up 10%, you just earn 10% more ETH to begin with, and, and boom, right? Now, now you essentially have levered your dollar position and just earned yield in the underlying asset. That product released uh, about a month and a half ago. Definitely been fun to see how it can act as almost like a sentiment oracle. You know, um, depending on how bullish or bearish people are, they tend to overweight one side over the other. Um, and essentially, it's the ratio between the junior and senior side that determines, you know, how much leverage juniors get, how much protection seniors get. Just essentially paying the paying people who are being contrarian for a given week is probably the way to think about how the system calibrates itself. Um, so there is a, a week-long lockup, but I, I wouldn't quite uh, consider that to be a bond-based system because we can't guarantee you what, what ends up happening at the end of the week, right? Um, that's, that's a function of price. Okay, th that's interesting. So on the Smart Alpha product, the seniors are, are shorting whatever asset is, is in the pool and the juniors are, are going long. Is that a, a good way to think about it? I would say that's 95% of the way. The one thing I would point out is that as a senior, you're still inherently long the underlying asset. I would just say you're, you're cautious in the short run, right? Because if you were really short an asset, um, you wouldn't want to get more of it on the way down, right, uh, at the end of the day. But like if you are an ETH bull or if you are a DPI bull, right, and let's say the past three weeks, four weeks have been green, you know, it was this DeFi summer, you know, whatever it might be. Um, the senior side allows you to kind of express this more nuanced position where it's like, you know, you, you think a local top might be coming in, you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of your upside um, to receive, um, you know, downside protection. But at the end of the day, you still want more ETH, right? Like you're more than happy to take that trade in the moment. Okay, so the senior side is bearish in the short term on the smart alpha. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And then on the smart alpha or on the smart yield bonds, it's essentially just tranching out the yield where is it do the seniors get like a fixed portion and the juniors are more variable? Or can you go into a little bit? Uh, or I guess maybe just explain how tranching fixed uh, how a tranched fixed income asset 
instrument works? Because it's not necessarily unique to DeFi. And just maybe just compare the two from like a DeFi to a TradFi standpoint. Sure. So I, I would say this is definitely an interesting topic because I think in kind of our conversations, both internally and I think we've expressed this externally as well, Tyler, our founder, has you know definitely thought twice by using the word trotch. <laughs> uh, and I can kind of go into why that's the case, right? So in TradFi, you know, those aren't familiar, uh, I think tranching is best thought of as a waterfall, right? You you might be tranche A, B, or C, and whatever cash flows are coming in from a given financial instrument, you know, hits A first, then B, then C. Um, we have similar logic in the smart yield system, but, you know, at, at the code level, it's actually a bit different. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, smart yield juniors are essentially levered variable positions. Um, they just get the interest earned by the system, you know, by all deposits in the system. But the senior side is not actually receiving um, the interest uh, being earned from those deposits. Rather, they're, they're earning premiums paid by juniors. And so the way to think about this uh, kind of an operational standpoint is that the senior side is a given size and it has a given debt that is owed to it. So let's say you have you know $100 in the senior side, average fixed rate of 5%. So that side needs to be paid five bucks upon the kind of average maturity of, of all the bonds on that side. And so what this means is, is that as yield is accruing on the deposits of this system. The junior side is getting all of them, but at the end of the day, everyone owes their pro rata share of that $5 that is owed to the senior side. And so as a junior, it could be the case that um, if you're earning a rate lower than what is the averaged fixed rate on the senior side, you're actually paying the premium you owe with the yield you're earning, and uh, it doesn't, you, you're not actually earning anything, right? And so it's it's almost like a compound token, except it can go both ways. So a junior position might earn yield, you know, for three months in a row, and then find itself uh, kind of like in a bear market for interest rates, where the senior side has some locked amount at a fixed rate that is higher on average. In that case, right, you would see the junior side actually kind of having to set aside yield uh, to pay off um, the premiums owed to the senior side. So in that sense, there is a tranched element here where seniors are guaranteed, you know, at a smart contract level, not at a fiduciary level, the kind of fixed rate owed to them. And that fixed rate actually exists in the system from time zero. So yeah, if you're a senior and you mint um, a position, the yield that is owed to you, there's there's enough on the junior side before any yield even accrues to compensate you upon maturity. You're, you're just time-locked such that your position can earn yield for the junior side to make it you know appealing for them to offer you that deal, so to speak. So I think, you know, tranche is... 80% accurate um, for, for how this concept plays out. But the unique kind of DeFi element here is that we can really ensure that the fixed rate is fixed. 
in the sense that we don't have to hope that we'll go earn that money in the open market or well, that the protocol will earn that money in the open market, right? It's, you know, if at the end of the day there was 0% yield earned uh, by all these deposits, then it's just the junior principal that, that pays the piper, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. And I can see probably the majority of people in the Discord right now and the majority of people that would be listening to this podcast later uh, would probably want to be in the junior position because we have a bunch of DeFi degens uh, in here. So what are some of the, like, what are the risks for the juniors? I guess it, in like a worst case scenario, a middle case scenario, just in general, what are the risks there? So I think our, you know, our current overview of smart yield is actually a great uh, case study for, for this answer because I, I think there are three situations on our UI at the moment. Um, so worst case scenario is that the amount locked in by the senior side for these fixed rate positions uh, was done at a rate that was you know, higher than the current prevailing market and you actually are owing yield to the senior side. So that's currently the case in our rye market. The rye market had a very high yield uh, for its first two or three weeks before liquidity mining incentives went live on their Aave market. And so right now there's 250K in deposits on the senior side that were locked in at some double digit rate. And there's 250K on the junior side. Um, so the junior side is earning negative yield right now. You know, not, not something you usually see on a <laughs> DeFi dashboard, right? Um, but that's because the ratio between the two sides is what it is, and the rate is what it is. You know, and, and the prevailing uh, the prevailing rate in the market is what it is. If more ride juniors were to enter, that rate would go from negative to less negative back to positive, right? As the junior side eventually gets to a size where it's earning enough yield um, to cover the the what's owed to the senior side, right? Because if you had $10 million of rye um, earning even just 1%, that's still enough to cover 200K worth of rye needing 10%, for example. And so that's worst case scenario, right? You're not actually earning any yield. Then, so on, on the kind of like middle outcome level, right? You have um, a situation where the junior side greatly outpaces the senior, meaning that, you know, maybe there's 10 million on the junior side, and let's just call it 100K on the senior side. The yield is of minimal leverage to the junior side. And so as a junior, you've just paid gas fees, have taken on more smart contract risk, and you're earning maybe barely a bit more than you would just having vanilla deposited into that compound market or that hobby market. This is something we're addressing with our you know, fiat project that we're spinning out, essentially making it more attractive to have a senior position, regardless if you're a degen or a, you know, conservative investor. Um, and then finally, on the bright side for the juniors, this occurs when the senior side is, you know, let's call it at least 50% the size of the junior side. And the prevailing rates in the market are, you know, at or higher than what was locked in on, on average by the seniors. Because now you're actually getting uh, levered exposure to the underlying as a junior, and juniors get to have the 
senior sides uh, earn yield uh, contributing to themselves. And so I think on our UI right now, let me double check because I know these markets can, can change pretty quick overnight. Um, I think our Gemini USD uh, pool on Aave, yeah, it's currently earning 63% APY without any incentives relative to the 17% underlying rate in the market currently. So Gemini USD is already being squeezed but essentially our juniors in that pool are getting 3x what the actual rate is. And that's because the senior side is 3x the size of the junior side. We have 450K in GUSD seniors and 150K uh, in GUSD juniors. So 63% on a stable coin without any token dumping is quite unique in DeFi. <laughs> um, and so you can see here how if you have a system in which seniors have a reason to enter regularly right like not just in spurts when the interest rates spike or whatever um you're able to create a system where juniors get leverage seniors get predictability and you know it's not entirely risk-free for either for smart contract reasons for market reasons but it's a relatively robust system that can then be you know integrated throughout DeFi, whether as you know collateral or if you are a lending market, we can become an aggregator and, and so on. So, yeah, all, all three examples are, are present on our Smart Yield dashboard. So for, for those who are interested in learning more, you can kind of check out our barnbridge.com website and see all the different ways Smart Yield can work. Uh, and that's all just in our Aave market, those three examples I just uh, called out. Yeah, this is, this is really interesting, Max. And I can definitely see, you know, a a need in the market for, for something like this in the sense that y'all are Barnbridge is tokenizing risk for users, both on the junior and the senior level. And it, you know, you don't want to talk about tranches maybe because that's putting a traditional finance term and trying to apply it to DeFi, which it feels like it's effectively a tranche, but I guess in practice, when you look at the code of the smart contract, it doesn't operate the same way. And it also kind of looks like a collateralized debt obligation or a collateralized loan obligation, depending on what part of the world you're in. Would you, I don't know, what are your thoughts on, I guess, that term in associating like a collateralized debt obligation and a collateralized loan obligation to this tokenized risk that Barnbridge uh, is providing. I think, you know, in my conversations with folks who are working in TradFi or investing on behalf of TradFi, uh, the main question is always, you know, like, what do you mean this is programmatically guaranteed or, you know, the smart contract can ensure, you know, X, Y, or Z, right? Because we have no legal recourse on chain. Um, and, there's no there's no contractual obligations for any of these markets, right? And so I think um, when when it comes to like defining what these types of instruments are, um, it's 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 definitely you know something that is made possible by over collateralized lending uh, in these systems in a way that you don't see in tradfi, right? Like mm. when we talk about tranches in tradfi, there's expectations around cash flows like hopefully people pay back their mortgages but there's you know endless levels of trust 
and punishment and <laughs> you know regulation that, that underpin those systems in a way that does not happen here. Um, so I, I think for the time being, right, like DeFi in its current resembles like a glorified pawn shop, uh, you know, for the most part. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Just given the growth and demand for liquidity in this space, like it's it's clear that it's been able to bootstrap tens of billions of, of, of value, uh, even with a relatively rudimentary kind of assumption, you know, that's underpinning all these apps, which is if it's over collateralized, feel free not to pay us back, right? Like <laughs> that's essentially the uh, assumption everyone makes when they deposit it into one of these lending markets. Um, so I think, you know, as the space matures and the amount of risk that is taken on, you know, especially once it comes to under-collateralized lending in the future, I think is where, where Barnbridge's products really w would shine, right? Where there really is a difference between, you know, one tranche and another in terms of even getting any money back, right? <laughs> So I don't know if that quite answers your question, but I feel like that's been what's most important to get across to people who are coming from the other side. Um, you know, just this concept that we have a lot of um, rails in place, ironically enough, right, that, that TradFi doesn't have, right? Like, you know, our modern, our modern banking system very much does not operate on over-collateralization. But because DeFi today does, um, you know, that allows smart contract logic to be a bit more assertive, I guess, I guess would be the word I'd use. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. And I, I agree. I think there's we do have these rails of over collateralization. But also, I think that uh, the transparency that we have on the blockchain is also something that differentiates, you know, the DeFi market from the TradFi market. And I think it's just interesting because, you know, I, when I think of tranches and collateralized debt obligations. Um, I kind of think of mortgage-backed securities, which is essentially what sparked the decline of, you know, the, the 2008 financial crisis. But I think a, a big difference here um, is that the, the tokenized risk and CDO-esque product that Barnbridge has here, uh, it, like you said, it's over-collateralized. It has traceability on the blockchain and it's much more efficient. And I think, I feel like this gives users, institutions, DAOs, whomever, uh, the ability to trade in and out of risk, uh, which, I mean, that's what Wall Street does every single day, uh, but this is in a much more transparent way. W would you agree with those statements? Absolutely. And I think, you know, DeFi um, is in a very good place to kind of challenge a lot of the assumptions that we, you know, make about derivatives in the traditional market, right? Because because of this transparency you're alluding to, you know, just going off of the 08 housing uh, crisis example, right? The biggest issue there was transparency around what was actually going into those uh, mortgage-backed securities. Whereas in a DeFi system, you know, should those assets be on chain? You know, if we're talking about DAI or ETH or, you know, any of the assets we all here use on a day-to-day -day basis, there is an address associated with it, right? Like the DAI stable coin comes from, you know, contract address, whatever. And so to the extent that smart contracts can accept this information and do something with that information is, you know, allows for a far more complex 
derivative stack without necessarily introducing the same type of counterparty risk it would in TradFi. You know, obviously there's smart contract risk. Obviously, the more things you click together, the more risk you invite. But you know, in a TradFi setting, you would never expect to be able to take out a loan at Goldman, then use that to collateralize a structured product position at JP Morgan, and then you go to some other broker dealer or some other bank, right? Like go, let's call it six levels deep, and then still be able to have a secondary market <laughs> for that kind of position, right? It's like all done contractually. It's uh, different parties don't want to share information with each other. We kind of saw that with the, um, the, the one hedge fund blow up earlier in the year where none of the broker dealers knew about like, the collateral being kind of used across uh, different accounts and stuff like that. Whereas here in DeFi, you know, you there are systems that go four or five smart contracts. A, a lot of people here have had those instances in DeFi where they're comfortable going to one smart contract, minting a stable coin, and then putting that stable coin in a vault, and then taking that vault and minting more stable coins with it, and you know, going through all these levels of recursion. But at the end of the day, you know, a person who cares enough would be able to show every single smart contract that's being used, every single asset that's being used. And with Uniswap, SushiSwap, Bancor, right, like all these different DEX platforms, you can actually create secondary liquidity uh, for each of those derivative steps as well. And that's just non-existent in TradFi. And I think that's where the real power of DeFi gets unlocked. The one irony to all that is we all have to make pretty massive assumptions about kind of like the base underlying assets, right? Like when we use USDC, when we use Tether, right, we're all essentially kind of working with money market shares and not real dollars. And so that's probably the Achilles heel in DeFi today, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, to your point on transparency, it just allows for a far more dynamic derivative stack, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I think another thing I'll say on CDOs, and then we'll move on, is that, you know, collateralized debt obligations, they were, they were never designed to be malicious products. I think they just kind of got that reputation after 2008. And in 2008, you just had CDOs that were within CDOs that were within CDOs, and they just wasn't very transparent. I mean, it in a sense, you could do the research, but it's not, you don't have the ease of transparency than you do in, in DeFi because it's all, you know, open source and on chain. Right. But yeah, kind of moving on, what is the, the target user for these products? You know, are y'all seeing crypto native funds? Are you seeing DAOs or is it more just retail users, DeFi degens? Who do you see on both the senior side and the junior side of these products that you're offering? So I think where we stand today, um, it's, it's mainly DeFi native users and the treasuries of the DAOs they participate in, right? Just because the ability for you know, more traditional folks, even if they are interested in the fixed income products, for example, right? You're assuming a lot if you think their mandate will allow them to get exposure to them. And what people always forget about fixed income in the traditional world is that it's an incredibly levered ecosystem. And so today, right, there's not a lot of options for on-chain leverage for fixed income positions. Um, 
And that's something we're working on. And we think that's you know, a, a pain point for our smart yield product that, you know, once solved, uh, will kind of result in the, the original flywheel actually playing out. And so I think the majority of folks that we've seen come through the junior or senior side to date are usually just crypto whales or um, crypto native funds. The smart alpha product is a bit different because it is a prediction market mechanism. And I think asset price volatility is of more interest to a wider swath of people. You know, smart, smart yield going interest rates is, is a pretty nuanced topic, right? Whereas asset price is uh, <laughs> what everyone here kind of gets used to from day one, right? And so there we've seen quite a array of users, right? From people that have deposited a million dollars to those who deposited, you know, a couple grand. And they're all able to kind of express their outlook on the market for the upcoming week uh, as they see fit. And what we're working on there is this kind of idea that with secondary liquidity, lending against these positions becomes possible. You know, senior smart alpha positions are represented as ERC-20s. So you could imagine senior ETH uh, serving as pretty great collateral, you know, just from a low volatility perspective um, across DeFi. Right? That's kind of our long, longer term hope there. And so just to get back to your original question, right, I think Smart Alpha has definitely seen a more, you know, diverse set of participants. Uh, on both accounts, it's clear that um, DeFi today runs on lending and leverage. And so if you're building products that, force a person to decide between using it and getting leverage and doing something else, most people are going to pick leverage. And so our, our focus is really on um, building on secondary liquidity and leverage uh, for these derivative assets, you know, regardless if it's a senior or a junior in either of these apps. I think then we'll really be able to see um, a far more diverse uh, set of users come, come in as a result. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. Um, so uh, you mentioned earlier DeFi 2.0. Uh, I think depending on who you talk to, Barnbridge would be considered DeFi 2.0 or a DeFi 2.0 protocol. Uh, what are your thoughts on that term in general? Um, is it just a meme? What does it mean to you? And what does it mean to Barnbridge and the Barnbridge community? So... Uh... I would say it definitely is a meme, but a meme with a kernel of truth to it, right? Um, if, if you look at the projects that have really fit that mold on crypto Twitter, or at least are the ones that are associated with it, they're the ones who really leaned into kind of a risk-on approach, a really, you know, not quite permissionless, but, you know, less gated maybe than incumbents have been about asset support or... Uh, kind of like product development work. I, I view this uh, DeFi 2.0 conversation to be just more reflective of people's gripes with, you know, the existing incumbents, right? I think, you know, Barnbridge had a good had a good case study here where we were the first asset to not get accepted on the on Aave, you know, through like through Aave governance, we were the first ones to get rejected. And you know, we weren't happy about that. We weren't happy about how it tangled uh, behind the scenes, really. But, you know, who came to our, or who was our savior in that scenario, right? It was Rari Capital. You know, we were able to launch our own permissionless pool and kind of have 
more say um, over our destiny in that sense. You know, Barmbridge as a protocol is, is going to be issuing quite a variety of derivative assets going forward, right? You, you have junior and senior versions of any ERC-20 supported by Smart Alpha, many juniors and seniors on the Smart Yield side too. And so from our perspective, right, um, the very, you know, kind of gatekeeping type approach that characterized DeFi in the past, that's not going to work, right? I don't think we can get some random derivative of ours proofed through a different community's governance system, right? If they don't even know who we are or if maybe they don't understand the product, right? It just gets tougher and tougher uh, as the space gets, has more participants building more things, right? You just have kind of this exponential curve of everything that's going to get built in DeFi going forward, right? And so in that sense, it's like, I don't think, DeFi 2.0 is upsetting incumbents anytime soon. I think this is just a massively growing pie that everyone's going to be participating in, you know, at different points of the risk curve. And, you know, there's definitely something to be said for uh, bull markets and risk management, right? Like, you know, I don't know how some of these DeFi 2.0 platforms would perform in a bear market with their like very risk on approach. Um, so that's also something to keep in mind, but I do think it's a real, you know, wake up call for platforms that may be existing incumbents or enjoy kind of just the reputation of having been here for a few years that there's always someone, you know, who's, who's hungry to take your seat, who's willing to kind of make trade-offs that you decided weren't worth it two years ago in the middle of the bear market, right? Like I think that's a real reality and, I think we just all benefit as users, right, from this type of back and forth, even if it is kind of a, you know, silly meme uh, in, in the crypto Twitter space, right? It, it, I still think it motivates uh, everyone to kind of reflect on what they're building, how they're building it, and we as a result benefit from the competition. Yeah, definitely. I, I share uh, similar sentiments to you. And I, I was going to ask you about the Ave situation, but you kind of brought it up uh, anyway. But yeah, I think that's true. I think that's part of what's great about crypto and DeFi is that there's constant innovation and there's a constant push to be better than you were the day before. Because if you don't innovate and you don't work hard and you don't build, um, you're just going to get forked. Right. I mean, that's just part of it. You know, you'll get you'll get vampire attacked or, or whatever. You know, you've got to you've got to really adjust to what the market wants or what the market needs. And I, I feel like you are doing a really good job of doing that. So, yeah. What are your thoughts on the whole Ave Barnbridge situation? Can you give just like a brief overview for our listeners and kind of just give your thoughts personally on the issue? Sure. Um, so back in May, we kind of initiated the process to get Bond listed as a collateral type on Aave. And what essentially kind of proved to be the Achilles heel of that whole situation was that our process went through at a kind of a, a cusp moment for Aave governance. And so long story short, while we were interacting with core team members on, on the Aave side, working with Parify Capital as well to kind of iron out some parameters within our proposed proposal. It essentially took seven or eight weeks for that proposal to actually hit Aave governance. 
And in that time, a new snapshotting mechanism was introduced. And that snapshotting me mechanism was introduced after the old system's equivalent milestone, if that makes sense, right? Like we had a forum conversation with a forum poll that ended before snapshotting was a live thing. And so when we went to have um, this, you know, actual governance vote, a number of whales in the Abe community, you know, those, especially I think the, one of the largest holders of Abe had qualms with the risk parameters that this governance proposal was submitted with despite, you know, a forum post that was up for three weeks, support from uh, various obvious stakeholders internally, you know, just really caught us blindsided. And because, you know, our process was submitted uh, while the kind of governance processes on the obvious side were being altered, you know, it was easy for, you know, observers to say, oh, you should have done a snapshot first. And well, you know, that wasn't the case when we, we're going through the original process. And so it was just an example of, you know, I think bureaucratic mishap, um, an example of how governance in a system or in a DAO, right, can, can definitely wind up uh, having conflicts of interest, right? Like, you know, if someone who didn't support Farmbridge is a massive holder in governance, then that's what you get, right? And so I, I think, we were obviously disappointed by it, um, but we found, you know, alternatives uh, through our, our RARI fuse pool. And my personal view is that it was unfortunate the way it played out. And I don't think we got a lot of uh, public goodwill out of it necessarily because of the kind of changing governance processes on the Abe side. Someone without context, you know, said, oh, they just didn't do the, the process right, right? And so I think that's what hurt me the most. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it was a good example of how, um, you know, the, there's, a, there's a line between proper risk management and gatekeeping, and it's, it, it, it's tough in a very expanding industry uh, where, where people have exposure to some that expansion and others don't. Uh, I think that just like results in loggerheads uh, more often than not. And I think it, it's definitely worth thinking about how, you know, just us as DeFi builders in general, like as we think about risk management and uh, building flexible protocols, how we can make these types of decisions be more of a, you know, continuous process rather than a discrete one, right? Um, but that's, that's a bit more philosophical. So, I don't know if that answers your, your question fully, but I think, you know, at the very least, we'll serve as a good case study uh, for DeFi builders coming up uh, through the ecosystem. Yeah, no, you definitely ans answered my question, Max. I just felt like kind of what you said, it, it's a good case study. And I feel like it was a pretty important moment in DeFi. It, it was just very interesting to see what was going on on Twitter and on the governance forum when all this was going on. But we'll move on from that subject. And I'm curious for you, like which other protocols outside of Barnbridge have you been paying attention to that have been really just catching your eye lately? I think the easy answer for most people would be Olympus DAO here. Uh, they've definitely been uh, the success story of, of DeFi uh, in this year, in my opinion. And I'm glad to see kind of the narrative shift 
you know, and be informed by their take on, on protocol controlled liquidity and just protocol controlled assets in general, right? Because I think, you know, if 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 I had to guess what the long term vision of DAOs look like, right? It's it's less like companies and more like communities, city states, right? Like that's the grand like century long vision, right? And you can't have that without you know, assets and resources backing a given community. So I think, you know, obviously that's a bit of a grandiose interpretation of uh, decentralized exchange liquidity, which is what that amounts to today. But I think um, it's it's set our space on a on a very constructive course. So to mix it up just a tad, um, though, though they also got a lot of publicity over the past month. I think people are really underestimating the impact Tokamak uh, can have on the kind of like, you know, protocol bootstrapping process, right? Because there's there's one thing to be said for a protocol accumulating its own liquidity, but I do think it'll be interesting to see what results when the first protocols realize that they can, you know, bribe <laughs> Tokamak liquidity directors to send uh, liquidity their, their way for their respective tokens, right? We've seen that happen with Curve, right? Where uh, I think it was Andre at YFI, he built like a, a bribe mechanism for people to, you know, kind of pay voting Curve holders to um, prioritize the pools that they care about, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so now you can imagine a scenario where, you know, let's say a protocol has been doing liquidity mining for a little bit, They've been doing Olympus Pro bond buybacks for a little bit. And now they're like looking to kind of supercharge their liquidity. Why don't you just drop off UMA KPI auctions to liquidity directors within Tokamak that pay out depending on how much uh, volume um, those pools get? Right now, now you have a really interesting incentive game. And I think that's personally what I see as being the next, you know, crypto Twitter, not fiasco, but someone's going to do it eventually. <laughs> and I think it'll raise a lot of, you know, just a lot of conversation and discussion, just like Olympus Dow has had uh, to date. Um, so those two are the ones I've been thinking about the most, especially as we work on this uh, Fiat Dow um, spin-out project, right? Just because we're in a position there where we have to consider all these typical bootstrapping questions over again. But I, I think it is really great to see, you know, that the space is moving forward the way it is, right? Like these conversations around Olympus down Tokamak wouldn't have even made sense a year ago. It's that rapid pace uh, of development just as an industry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm also a big fan of Olympus Dow and we have a lot of Omis at index co-op who would be uh, happy to hear you uh, shill their favorite protocol right now. So I just got a couple more questions for you and because we're running up on time, and I'll let you go. So, you know, at the Index Co-op, we create index crypto native index products to make DeFi investing easy uh, for passive investors. We have the Metaverse Index, the DeFi Pulse Index. We now just recently have the Data Economy Index, which includes, you know, Chainlink and the graph. And then we have the Bed Index, which is a third Bitcoin, a third Ethereum and a third DeFi. So I'm wondering just what do you think would be a interesting index coop product that we could come out with um, just just in general? Like, what, what are your thoughts? What could be a new cool one for us to, to deploy? I'm not sure if I have a great answer for that. <laughs> I 
I personally am a fan uh, of the DPI index, and I think that's just always going to be something that keeps up with the times, right? And as it you know uh, recalibrates uh, regularly. I'm trying to think of you know what the kind of category du jour is. I, I do think these asset-backed protocols would make for an, an interesting one to track. Even you know, but I don't know if you could come up with like a, a good price argument for that, right? Like essentially, you're just you're just bundling a bunch of backed assets together and see what happens. But I, I guess my question would be more so, you know, what what the community has been clamoring for. Um, I feel like as, as, a, as a builder now, it's been hard to keep up with everything else in the space. And I definitely am not always up to speed on, um, you know, what the newest categories might be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think some interesting ones that we've been working on would be like uh, the Polygon Diversified Index, which is kind of just taking a lot of protocols that are on Polygon right now and putting those in an index. That way, if you want exposure to the Polygon Matic space, you know, you could purchase this index and then you'd you'd have it. And then we've, we've got a lot of other very interesting ones too, like uh, JPEG index, which is NFT focused. So it uses, I think we're going to use Fractionalize and NFTX to kind of get into those pools and that way, just give people exposure to the hottest NFTs. Uh, I think that'll be a popular one, too. So those are just some things that we've been working on uh, kind of under the hood in the governance forum. So, yeah. Hey, Max, it's been great to have you. Uh, really appreciate the time. I think Barnbridge is an incredible protocol. I think it's super cool. So my final two questions are, where can people go to find out more about Barnbridge and more about you? Sure. Um, so I would direct people to the Barnbridge Twitter account. That's barn underscore bridge. Uh, and there you'll be able to access both the website that you know hosts the front ends for these two protocols, as well as our, our Discord, which is where most of the communities uh, kind of talk and, and getting to know each other and, you know, putting up protocol suggestions and the like. And then on my end, I'm at figa underscore max. Um, also on Twitter. And that's where I spend far, far, far too much of my time, unfortunately. So feel free to DM me if you have any uh, follow-up questions. All right. Absolutely. Max, thanks again for coming. Thanks to everyone in the audience for listening live. This is being recorded and we will get this recording out in about a week. Again, thanks for everyone for coming and I'll catch you next time. Thanks, Max. Thanks. Take care, everyone.